Well, uh, welcome to those of you who are new lifers, and we've been looking forward to this celebration for quite a while, haven't we? And uh, those of you who are guests, welcome to you. Um, We want you to know New Life seeks to be a grace place where you can come with imperfections and not feel like you have to be perfect because someone was already perfect for us. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Nearly 2,000 years ago, early on a Sunday morning, in the darkness that precedes the light of dawn, several women approached a tomb carrying some spices with which to anoint the lifeless body of a dead man. Well, as they drew near, they were surprised to find some Roman guards sprawled out on the ground looking pretty dead themselves. And they were further startled at the sight of what appeared to be an angel sitting on the large stone that had somehow been moved away from the mouth of the tomb. And the angel spoke to them, and the Bible records he said this to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. He has risen as he said, as he said. And today on this Easter Sunday, we joyfully and exuberantly celebrate the one who was crucified and who rose from the grave that first Easter morning. Jesus, the risen Lord, is alive today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. He is alive. He has risen as he said. It's interesting to note the angel's statement, as he said. And that tells us that Jesus actually predicted both his death and his resurrection before those events ever occurred. In fact, it's recorded in the Bible that Jesus said this to his disciples just days before. Luke 9.22, the Son of Man, he said must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He predicted it. You know, it's one thing to to predict your impending death. I'm going to Jerusalem. They don't like me there. They're going to put me to death. But it's a whole nother ball game to predict your own resurrection. And Jesus did that. He predicted it. That should tell you something about this man. His rejection by the religious rulers, his suffering and execution, and his resurrection on the third day were all events that happened in accordance with his own prediction. But note this. His prediction contained a key word. He said the Son of Man must suffer. That's interesting. Must suffer. Jesus not only predicted what would happen, but he declared that it must happen. Well, what's that all about? Well, that little word must points us back to prophecies made hundreds of years before Jesus ever arrived on this planet. Prophecies that one day a Messiah king would show up, a king who would usher in a new kingdom, the rule and reign of God himself on the earth. And some of those ancient prophecies also declared that this Messiah King would first have to suffer, and that his suffering would not be for his own wrongdoing, but it would be for the sins of others. He must suffer many things. And so when Jesus said that, he was in effect saying, I'm it, guys. I'm the one that was predicted. I'm the one that was prophesied about. I'm here. I'm that Messiah King. You don't have to look for anyone else. I'm it. I'm it. Well, that message that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the promised Messiah King 
who would fulfill all those prophecies, who at the appointed time in history did come, who lived a perfect life in every way, fulfilling the law of Moses, who was then executed for the sins of others, who came out of that grave, who gives new life to his people, and who will one day appear as the righteous ruler to usher in the good life. That message is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news. And I think on this Easter Sunday, we need to understand anew and afresh today that the gospel is the central message of Christianity. It really is. It's the message that's focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul called the gospel the message that is of first importance. It's the absolute most important message. In Mark 1.15, Jesus called on people to repent and believe the gospel. And just before he left and ascended back up into heaven, he looked at his followers and told them this in Mark 16.15, go into all the world and proclaim, what? The gospel, the message of good news. And that's what they did. Those first followers of Jesus, after being empowered by the Holy Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost, went around Judea proclaiming the gospel. Jesus' perfect life, Jesus' substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection, his appearance, and his promised return to come and set up his kingdom. That was the central theme of their teaching, their preaching, and their worship. One man who was converted to Christianity in those early days was named Saul of Tarsus. Now Saul was a very religious guy, more religious than any of you, more religious than me who also happened to be an enemy of the gospel and a hater of Jesus Christ and a hater of Christians. One day on his way to Damascus to arrest some Christians, Saul got ambushed by Jesus on that road. And in an instant, his whole mindset was changed. His whole life was transformed. In a moment, everything changed. He even got a new name, Paul. Saul became Paul. And Paul became a man obsessed with this gospel message. He wrote a letter to the Christians in Rome declaring that he had been set apart for the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, he said to that church, basically, I have one message for you, Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Galatians, he wrote that he had been taught the gospel by Jesus Christ himself. Imagine that. And that any other so-called gospel was false. The gospel message became so consuming to Paul and so dominated his life that on one occasion when he was talking to some church leaders in Ephesus, he said this, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He said, I'm all about spreading the gospel. It doesn't matter whether I live or whether I die as long as the message gets out. That was his passion, and so the persecutor of Christians had become a preacher. During his life, Paul wrote many letters to to different churches, and one of those was a letter to a church in a city called Colossae. It's called Colossians, and it's found in our New Testament. And on weekends here at New Life, and in our small groups that meet during the week, we've been studying together this letter to the Colossians, seeking to understand it and believe it and apply its message. And so far, we've actually made it through the first two chapters of Colossians. And the main message up to this point seems to be this. 
When you have Jesus, you have everything you really need. That's been the message so far. When you have Jesus Christ in your life, you have everything you really need. It can be expressed in kind of a mathematical equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Conversely, you can be a person who seemingly has everything in this life, but if you don't have Jesus, you really have nothing of any eternal value. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Well, in the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul took particular aim at one of the chief enemies of the gospel of the grace of God, religion. Now, that may sound strange to you. He takes aim at religion, and by religion, I mean the belief that you can be accepted by God if you will just do the right stuff and try really hard to keep the rules, cut out all your bad habits, and perform well for God. Religion teaches this. If you perform well, then you will be accepted. That's religion. You know, that wasn't just a first century belief. Most people on our planet hold to some version of a performance-based religious belief. Perhaps you've come in today, and that's how you've always been taught. If I perform well for God, then he'll accept me and take me to heaven. Religion says God exists and his primary concern is that you behave. And so God's primary message, according to religion, is behave. Do good. Stop doing bad. Be a nice person. And if you do, God will be happy with you and he'll accept you and take you to heaven. That's the religion of do, D-O, the word do. You got to do it. You got to make it happen. Christianity, on the other hand tells us that the gospel of Jesus teaches something totally different. The gospel declares that none of us could ever do enough to be accepted by God because God is absolutely holy. Not only that, it tells us the entire human race, apart from the gospel, is dead in sin. Dead, dead to God, unresponsive to God. Therefore, we need someone who can make us alive to God. We need a savior. We need a substitute who will stand in for us and take the judgment that we deserve because of our many sins. We need a sacrifice who would be qualified and willing to accept God's judgment for us and pay the penalty for our sins. We need a life-giving savior who will infuse his life into our dead souls so that we can have a relationship with God. And the gospel tells us that we all need someone like that and that God sent his own son, Jesus, to be that for us. That's the good news. And so on this Easter Sunday, we come, we turn a corner in our study and come to Colossians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to just look at the first few verses. There's a study outline also in your worship folder. In this short passage, Paul gives us a description of people who have received this gospel by faith. He paints a portrait of a genuine Christian, someone who's the real deal. And on this Easter weekend, I felt compelled that I needed to ask you that question, and this is what we need to consider today. Are you a real Christian? Are you a real Christian? Are you the real deal? Are you the genuine article when it comes to being a Christian? Or is it possible that you've bought into a substitute, a counterfeit brand of Christianity? You know, some people think that being a Christian is equivalent to being an American. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I live in America. (laughs) Others think that a Christian is somebody who just tries to be nice, 
and be helpful to people and try to live like Jesus lived. But what is a real Christian anyway? Maybe you've wondered that. Well, let's explore Paul's portrait of a Christian in these first four verses. Listen to the word of the Lord. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, I notice several important things here, and some of them are easy to understand, and others of them are deeper truths that we're going to need God's help to comprehend, like this first one. I think the first thing that Paul wants to communicate here about genuine Christianity is this. Genuine Christianity contains a mystical dimension. Theologians would call it union with Christ. Now there were some mystics back in that day who had infiltrated that church, the church at Colossae, and were seeking to influence the people there. And they were claiming this, that if you wanted to be a true Christian, if you wanted to really be spiritual, then you needed to have some mystical experiences. You needed to have some visions. You needed to have some encounters with angels. You needed to have some experiences that lifted you out of the mundane, ordinary dailiness of your life and put you in touch with ultimate reality. Well, in chapter 2, we saw that Paul exposed those guys basically as proud, arrogant blowhards who didn't know what they were talking about. But now here, it's as if Paul is saying, look, you want mystical? Okay, I'll give you mystical. Think about this. True Christians are actually united with Jesus Christ in a mystical union. Christians, it says, are in Christ, united with Christ so closely that when he died, we died. When he came out of that grave, we were raised with Christ. That's why in verse 3 it says, you have died. And in verse 1 it says, you've been raised with Christ. Now maybe you're here today and you've been taught that being a Christian is primarily about having your sins forgiven. And I want you to know that being a Christian is about that, but it's about much, much, much more than that. Did you know that? There's so much more involved. Christians have died to their old lives and have been raised to live a new kind of life. Listen to what God's word says in Romans 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self... The old me was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And maybe you're here today and you hear that and you say, whoa, that's deep. I don't get that. Could I encourage you to come back to new life? next week and the weekends beyond because this is what we're going to be seeing as we press in deeper to Colossians chapter 3 how this spiritual truth fleshes out in our daily lives together that's what we're going to be learning about what is a Christian? a Christian is someone who has been united with Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection a Christian is someone who is in Christ wow but there's more 
Notice in verse 2, the strong call to those who have been raised with Christ. It says, seek the things that are, what? Above. Then it says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So number two, genuine Christianity calls for a heavenly focus above where Christ is. You've probably heard someone make this statement. Oh, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. You ever heard that statement before? You ever said that? You know what? I think Paul takes that statement and turns it on its head and basically says, until you are heavenly minded, you are not much earthly good. Set your minds on things above, he says. He's talking about our mindset, our focus. Focus on things above. Dwell on those things. That's where your life comes from. Now look, he's not saying that earthly things aren't important. Going to work, raising kids, fertilizing your lawn, having a house, buying a car, those things are fine. Those are necessary. They're part of our lives as human beings on this earth. But what he's saying is that those things don't define us. That's not what we're all about. They're not the dominant focus of our lives. What is? Jesus. See that? Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seek Jesus first. Jesus is to be our focus. Now let me say a couple quick things here. Above is where Christ is. Now, you know that Jesus is not a little baby anymore, right? I hate that scene in that unmentionable, horrible movie where everybody's praying to baby Jesus and kind of making fun of him. Jesus is not a little baby anymore. He grew up. Not only that, he's not walking the dusty roads of Galilee anymore either. No, he ascended back into heaven where he is glorified and exalted. He's the reigning king of kings and lord of lords. If you want a picture of what Jesus looks like now, we're given one in Revelation chapter 1. You should read about that. You'll see that Jesus is breathtaking in his magnificence and Stunning in his authority, unrivaled in his dominance. Let's remember that. And let's retrain our minds to think of Jesus as he really is. That's what he's saying. And notice, secondly, that above is where Christ is, what does it say? Seated. Hmm. Hey, what do you do when your work's all done? What do you do after your work's done? You sit down. You know what this tells us? This tells us that Jesus finished his work and he sat down. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. When the Bible states that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, it's declaring that his work was finished. That's what he said on the cross, right? He didn't say, it is nearly done. No, he said, it's finished. And he sat down. Completed, finished. By the way, that's what distinguishes Christianity from religion, as we've talked about. Religion focuses on what people must do in order to earn God's favor. 
Christianity focuses on what Jesus has already done to earn his favor for us. Big difference. If you don't get anything else today from being here on Easter Sunday, get that. Religion is the religion of do. Christianity is the, is the faith of done. After he had done it all, he sat down. And so what we see here is a call to set our minds on the completed work of Jesus, the finished work of Christ. Focus on that. Dwell on that. Remind your mind of the things Jesus has done in you and for you that are beautiful, complete, magnificent, finished, and can never be reversed or undone. Earlier in Colossians, we learned what some of those things were, those things that are above that we're supposed to be dwelling on. Deliverance from the domain of darkness, Jesus did that for his people. Citizenship in his kingdom, full redemption, complete forgiveness of all of our trespasses, past, present, and future. Being reconciled with God, the hope of being glorified with Jesus one day, being made alive, and ultimately triumphing over sin, death, and Satan. Those are completed works of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, set your mind on those things. Live out of those realities. The gospel truth. Well, genuine Christianity contains a mystical dimension, union with Christ. It calls for a heavenly focus on things above. And number three, genuine Christianity offers a secure but obscure identity. It says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a curious phrase, isn't it? Hidden with Christ in God. Well, the first thing that jumps out at me from that word hidden is that that's a picture of security. That's reiterated in John chapter 10 where Jesus declared this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what's Jesus saying? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. A true Christian is someone who is protected forever. True Christians will never experience God's judgment. They will never lose their eternal life and they will never end up in hell. They are kept, guarded, shielded by the hand of the Son and the hand of the Father. You know, if you're a a Christian today, a true Christian, you are in good hands. I've been reading about some of the martyrs from the early church. One of them's name was Justin. And Justin, just before he died, just before they were ready to take off his head, he said, you know, you can kill me, but you can't do me any real harm. (laughs) Protected, protected, hidden with Christ in God. But you know, that idea of being hidden has another connotation, I think. Think about it. On this earth, in this present age, our true identity as Christians is somewhat concealed, isn't it? Somewhat obscured. The world around us does not see us the way that God sees us. Christians are not generally highly regarded in this world. I mean, your neighbor does not come over to your front porch and bow down and say, Oh, citizen of heaven, I regard you highly. That hasn't happened to me lately, you. I mean, Christians are not necessarily highly regarded in this world. We're not seen as God sees us. We have an exalted position in Christ, but more often believers are ridiculed and made fun of and pitied as being 
half-wits and idiots and sometimes just ignored altogether. And as I mentioned, in some places, believers are even murdered and martyred. And so our true identity is not often recognized in this life. And so in that sense, too, our lives are hidden with Christ, concealed. But one day, the true identity of God's people is going to be manifest for everyone to see. For everyone to see. You see the promise in verse 4? When Christ, who is your life, appears, what? Then you also will appear with him in glory. Hidden now, appearing later. Number four, fourth truth about Christianity is this. Genuine Christianity promises future vindication, appearing with Christ. It's hidden now, it's obscured now, but on that day when Jesus will appear in the heavens, we who know Christ will appear with him and it will be glorious. Who the genuine people of God are will be obvious. And I imagine that on that day, unbelievers will look up and go, oh my, (laughs) it's true. It's true after all. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and he did come and purchase a people for himself and there they are. It's going to be quite a day. The true identity of God's people will be fully manifest in glory, it says. That means brilliant, dazzling light. We will share in his glorious radiance such that there will be no mistaking who we are. As Paul wrote in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Hidden with Christ now, appearing with Christ in glory then. Now one last thing. There's a little phrase in verse 4 that has gripped my heart and I've been praying will grip your heart today. See it? When Christ who is your life appears. When Christ who is your life. Will you say that phrase with me? Christ who is your life. My life. See, if you're here today and you're not yet a true believer in Jesus Christ, please understand this last point, number five. Genuine Christianity is not a religion. It's a consuming relationship with Jesus. Christ is our life. The truly Christian life at its core is not a religion. It's a relationship. It's not a life consumed with keeping the rules. It's a life consumed with Jesus. And there's a difference. For true Christians, Jesus is life and life is Jesus. Christ is our life. Now listen. Everybody look at me. Your life has a focus. Did you know that? You are all about something. You, you are channeling your, your, your mental and emotional energies into a life-dominating pursuit and the people who know you best, the people who live with you, know what that is. They know what you're all about. Hopefully you know what you're all about. Your life has a focus. It could probably be summarized in a couple of words. Having fun. Being entertained. Being right. Being good. Gaining respect. Making money. Covering shame. Keeping the rules. Fixing everybody. Finding love. 
breaking the rules. Your life has a focus. But I want to ask this this morning. What if all of that got swept away and your life took on a whole new focus? What if your life became about something brand new? I want to introduce you to some people who are experiencing that kind of transformation in their lives. Take a look up at the side screens. Jesus is my life. Those are not paid actors, by the way. Those are people who are sitting in the congregation here this morning. Well, I don't claim to know the specific story of your life up to this point, but I do know this. Jesus wants to take the pen and write himself into the script of your life story as the hero of your story. Did you know that? Yes, that will mean bumping you off center stage, but that's okay. You were never meant to take that role anyway. Only Jesus Christ is suited perfectly to be the star of your story. Did you know that? After all, he's already the star of the big story that we all find ourselves in. So on this Easter Sunday morning, may I ask this question of you? Will you allow the living Son of God to take center stage in your life? To be your life? You know, I know there's a number of believers here today for Christians, and I think the challenge to those of you who who know Jesus, who have that relationship with him, is to let Jesus perhaps retake center stage. Maybe he's gotten crowded out by other concerns and other priorities in your life, and he's been subjected now to a minor role in your life and in your story. Other things have become your life. And I want you to know, and just to remind you, there's little joy in that. There's little joy. He deserves so much more. Let Jesus captivate your heart anew and afresh and become your life once again. Amen? And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in Christ, know this, know this, that becoming a Christian means entering into a relationship with Jesus, a consuming relationship with Jesus. It'll change the entire focus of your life here and now as well as your eternal destiny. And listen, Jesus has done everything necessary for that to happen in your life. He's done all the heavy lifting. He did it. He lived the perfect life. He took your sins on himself and died to pay the price. He rose from the grave. He lives today. He can give you his life so that he becomes your life. He's done the work. You can't add anything to Jesus finished work. In fact, if you're relying on your good works to make you acceptable to God, you're actually diminishing the work of the cross and that's offensive to God. He did it all. And may I remind you today that it was Jesus who made you, who knit you together in your mother's womb. And may I also remind you that Jesus loves you. He loves you. You say, I got mess in my life I got a past I've made poor decisions I know all that he knows all that he loves you anyway it's his love that prompted you to be here today it's his love that gave you another opportunity today to hear the gospel message and respond to it the Bible says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish protected 
will not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him. On the back side of your study outline there, I put several responses that are possible today to hearing this gospel message. The first we could call passive unbelief. I hope this is not where you're at, but maybe it is. Maybe you hear the gospel this morning and say, well, I don't really care about all that. It's fine for other people if it works for them. I'm focused on other things. And if that's your mindset today, I'm just praying that Jesus will ambush you and rearrange your whole life so that you see him for who he is. A second response you could call active unbelief. This is someone who says, you know, I don't like what I just heard. It's offensive to me that Jesus thinks he deserves to be the focus of my whole life. I reject that. I'm the master of my life, and I'll live it the way I want. Well, if that's your mindset today, I'm praying that God will doubly ambush you, (laughs) knock you off your horse, set you on your rear end on the ground like he did with Saul of Tarsus, and make known to you clearly the glory of Jesus Christ. But there's another response. You can call it active belief. And this is someone who says, you know, I know it's true. The focus of my life has been on other things, things other than Jesus, and there's so much wrong about that and about me, and I see this now. And I know I desperately need to be saved from my sin and from my self-absorption, my self-focus. And today I'm believing that out of love, Jesus took my place and paid for my sin and came alive again. And I sense God drawing me to Jesus right now and giving me the faith to entrust him with my whole life. I want Jesus to be my life. That's the response of active faith. And you know, maybe you've heard the term the sinner's prayer. When I read the scriptures, I only see one sinner's prayer in the Bible. It's very short and it goes like this. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Tax collector prayed that in the Bible. And it's very possible, even likely, that some of you, God is calling to pray that today. So would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you need to pray that this morning out of a sincere heart? I would say this, if faith, if you sense faith rising up in your heart, pray that prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If when you think about your own life, your own sin is overwhelming you with guilt, pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If your past is littered with bad choices and selfishness and going your own way and ignoring God, man, pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you realize today, maybe in a new way, that you've been relying on your own efforts to get God to accept you, pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you've always thought you were a pretty good religious person that God should accept, may your eyes be opened and pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you now realize Jesus did everything that needed to be done to make you right with God and you believe it, then pray that prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you know what? If God has been orchestrating circumstances in your life to crush your pride and to crush your self-sufficiency, that's a good thing so that you'll see your need for a savior. Maybe you're realizing today for the first time that you're not the real deal, (laughs) but you want to be. I urge you to pray from your heart, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if your life has been focused on anything other than Jesus, 
anything other than Jesus. Repent of that and pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, around here we teach our people to respond to the word of God when it's spoken. And I want to ask you a question this morning. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, if maybe you're here today and you say, Steve, I I believe God is marking out this day today as a turning point, a spiritual turning point in my life. And I'm praying that prayer, and by God's grace, I'm being drawn into a new relationship with Jesus today. Would you lift your hands so I could see them? Just lift your hands. Yeah. I see about maybe eight or ten hands. Thank God for that. You can put your hands down. I imagine there's some of you who would say, Steve, I am a Christian. I I believe I'm a Christian, but I'm seeing in a new way that Jesus deserves to be the focus of my whole life. I've let other things crowd him out of that role, and I need to really reinstate Jesus as the focal point of my life today. Pray for me. Would you lift your hands? That's me today. I'm a Christian, but Jesus needs to retake center stage. Yeah, many, many, many of us. And put your hands down. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus. Thank you for reaching down in love, touching people's hearts and lives even today. May we respond to your word now in worship, in humility, by receiving prayer, by offering you our lives anew and afresh. I pray in Jesus' name.